welcome to this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and today this episode of Frame and Reference comes to you on the Art of the Frame feed here as uh, part of the Pro Video Coalition Network. If you're unaware, Frame and Reference is a cinematography podcast that I host, uh, also part of the Pro Video Coalition Network. Um, I'm a contributing writer over there on Pro Video Coalition, and we're at about 80 episodes, I think, as of the time of this recording. So please go over to the Frame and Reference feed and give that a subscribe if you're into cinematography. I also talk to directors and um you know, production designers and other associated people that uh, interact with the director of photography, but uh, primarily cinematographers. And we've got everyone from Oscar winners to Emmy winners, ASC members, documentarians, um, definitely people who've shot your favorite films and television and maybe some surprises. Uh, I've, I have yet to talk to one dud. Every time I've, uh, you know, been given a screener or something, I've found a new favorite movie. And it's great to have kind of a, a form of curation come my way that isn't a streamer, you know, exclusively. So I pass that along to you. I recommend seeing all the films that you'll hear about on uh, Frame and Reference. But today on Art of the Frame, and I'd like to say that I uh, had the frame name first. I'd like to say, and I'm going to say because it's true. But (laughs) uh, today on on, uh, Frame and Reference via Art of the Frame, we've got uh, John Michael Powell who is the director and writer of The Send-Off. And with The Send-Off, he just won Arkansas Filmland and got a platinum package donation from Panavision, uh, which is worth like $60,000, and he's going to be able to probably make his next film with that one. So um, really cool uh, film that's getting a lot of attention now, and uh, I highly recommend you check it out. But uh, we're going to talk to John here. John and I hit it off swimmingly. We're definitely cut from the same cloth. So I know you're probably going to learn something from this podcast, but chances are you'll have as much fun listening to it as I had uh, making it and and chatting with John. So um, that's all I'll do for the intro. If uh, normally I try to keep these intros very short, but I think, you know, since we're not in our usual place, um, we're going to uh, make a slightly longer one. And depending on when you're listening to this, uh, season two of Frame and Reference might be over. Season three is going to start at the beginning of February 2023. So uh, we take December and January off because I'm not here. I'm working. So without further ado, let's get you to listening to my conversation with John Michael Powell. Getting started, I, how did you get involved in like what what not how did you get involved in film, but where did your interest in film start? I understand your uh, great uncle was it was a director. Mm, yeah, my great uncle. Yeah, yeah, but there was so much, you know, so many years removed. I mean, it's not like I grew up with my great uncle. My great uncle was um, his name was Dick Powell. He was a famous actor back in the. You know, really his heyday as an actor was like the 30s and the 40s. So, you know, I was a kid of the 80s. So, um, and he passed away um, in the late 50s, early 60s. Um, but, and, and he has a really interesting story and, you know, worth checking out his movies. He ended up leaving acting and becoming a director. And so when I was young, my grandfather moved in with me, which was his brother, and introduced me to his films. So, like, it wasn't like I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, and it wasn't like, you know, Dick Powell movies were playing at the local Metroplex, you know? So like, I had no I had no connection really other than my uncle or my, my grandfather connecting me to his films. And 
Um, I will say, like, I did grow up in a family that, you know, exposed me to lots of different eras of art and, you know, film and television and, and music. And so, yes, the local Metroplex was mostly playing Spielberg movies, which I loved, you know, as a kid. Um, but, you know, my grandfather and my mother especially were both keen on saying, you know, there's movies that happened before 1980. Um, you should check them out, um, or before 1975, before Jaws and Star Wars came along. And, um, and yeah, so, like, I definitely grew up watching a little bit of his movies, and uh, he, he was in a bunch of film noir, like, hard-boiled detective stuff, which was, I, I was drawn to as a kid, um, and I liked, and, um, and then, you know, later on, he directed a John Wayne movie and a Robert Mitchum movie, and, and I was, uh, I think those John Wayne and probably Robert Mitchum were probably two of the first, you know, pre, like, like I said, pre, you know, blockbuster, pre Star Wars actors that I was really drawn to more so Robert Mitchum. Um, but John Wayne too, I liked his Westerns and his movies as a kid. And I watched them over my mom's shoulder and my grandfather's shoulder. Um, and you know, uh, I definitely was the kid who would get on his bicycle and go to the local VHS store and rent. VHS as a kid in the 80s and the 90s. That was definitely something I did. But, uh, you know, it was mostly just uh, just the way you consume things as a kid. And, um, you know, it wasn't ever like I was thinking about filmmaking in any concrete way. And, and truth be told, I, I, when, when I got a little bit older, I, I got into music and I was, I was in bands and I played, you know, guitar and bass and sang in really bad bands, and, you know, and just Kind of kicked around for a long time thought i was going to be you know a professional musician um and did that for a while but it wasn't really till i got to college that i kind of concretely made the decision i was going to be a filmmaker um and it was just by chance i i, I was i was at school in in texas at uh, texas christian university um the horned frogs is kind of what they're most noted for because like who has a mascot called the horned frog that's but, pretty um, intense for a christian university <laughs> Which is weird, you know, it's very strange because I, I know I may be wrong and I don't want to badmouth Texas Christian University, but I, it was one of the least Christian places I've ever been in my life. And, you know, I'm not even religious to begin with. I, I chased a girl to go down there and, uh, and, and, and ended up in the arts program down there, um, which I really enjoyed. But, um, but it's like, it's not that, you know, you were saying you went to ASU. It's, it's pretty similar to ASU at the party school and, you know. Uh, in Texas, in Dallas, and or Fort Worth, technically, but um, but I had a good time. But I, I ended up in the graphics art program there. I was doing traditional art, like painting and stuff. Um, and <laughs> yeah, and it was a competitive program, and it was one of those programs where you you start with like a hundred people in the program, and by the fifth semester, there's only like ten. So they like every semester kind of weed people out. And I lasted a few semesters, and then they were like, you know, you're not going to continue. Uh, thanks. Right. Uh, and in a very like cordial way, they, you, you kind of present your art to the to the faculty, and the faculty sit you down and say, you know, great, you're not going to move on, but these are you know these are the programs that we think would fit your personality. You should check them out. Good luck. And one of them was the film program, and I was like, I was like, wait, you can get a degree uh, in watching movies? I was like, you know, that's ninety percent of what I spend my time doing anyway, between movies and music, and so. And so, yeah, I, I just dipped my toes in the water um, at the film program at TCU. And, uh, you know, they start you off with pretty, pretty, um, you know, 
history-based learning. It's not, it's not a lot of practical learning at first. It's like, you know, they want you to learn the, the history of cinema and analysis and all that stuff, which for some people can be kind of boring and not really fun. Cause you know, obviously as a, as somebody who wants to make movies, you want to pick up a camera and make movies like that. Right. And there's certainly something um, to be said for skipping all the history and, and analysis and jumping right in and just doing it yourself. I think there's something to be said for that. But I was really, you know, taken by the history and the, and the analysis stuff. And I just, the first semester, just fell in love with learning about movies. And um, that's probably, you know, going back to growing up with a great uncle who was in, a, in, in hard-boiled detective movies. And I definitely was the kid who liked black and white movies. And, like, most kids aren't growing up going, yeah, let's watch a Humphrey Bogart movie from 19. Right. So Treasure of the Sierra Madre isn't high on a 15-year-old's list to watch. but Let's watch Seven Seal. Yeah, exactly. Let's get into some metaphysical uh, philosophy. But um, but I don't know. I was just drawn to that stuff, and 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 the film history courses just really unlocked that. And then I think after you you made it through those classes, they gave you your first practical production class, and and I was just immediately I, I was like I knew the second I got in those classes, I was like, oh, this is what I was meant to do. Like I. I have a mind for this stuff. I also am just passionate about it. Um, sitting down and reading about cinema and, you know, taking tests on is not painful for me at all. It's, it's a luxury. And I, yeah, and I just breezed through that program and just, I knew kind of from the get-go, I was like, okay, I'm going to leave here and go take my shot at LA and just see what I can, what I can make of this. Cause I just felt, you know, so passionate about it. Whereas, you know, studio art and uh, music, they just, I, I love them and I love doing them. Studio art, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to make a career out of this beyond doing maybe some graphic design work and music. I played in bands that toured a little bit and quickly found out I wasn't built for that. I just don't like being in a, in a van, you know, stretching across America, you know, trying to get a hundred bucks so you can buy Taco Bell. And um, I had some good times, but I just didn't have the, the gumption to, you know, fight for a career in music and um, not that not filmmaking is any easier by, by any stretch, but it seems more tangible and that there were more facets to it that I could find avenues to kind of express myself, whether that was going to be at the time analysis, you know, critiquing or actual practical filmmaking. I didn't know at that time, but I certainly became very passionate about it very quickly. Yeah. The, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a few things I'd love to unpack in there because it's stuff that I've talked about on, <laughs> yeah, uh, on frame of reference. Cut me off, I just don't shut up. <laughs> no, no, this is a, the, uh, the, my, my podcasts are very, uh, free form like that. Okay. Um, I had, I did an interview with the, uh, the head of the ASC museum the other day. Oh, wow. Cool. My second question came in at the hour 30 mark. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, and it's fucking fascinating. Like, I don't want anyone to think, uh, that it was right. like a, a slog. It was, it was a ride, you know, <laughs> it was sure. literally like watching a movie. Um, sure. but, uh, I kind of wanted to dig in on, on the, um, movie rental experience, because I think that was so formative for me and you and, and a lot of other people, especially, uh, in the DVD era, when um, you got the special features and you could learn even more about that. Yeah. Um, when you were, you know, going to the movie rental place, was it like a blockbuster? Was it a local place? Did you have maybe the person behind the register? Were they 
sort of a taste maker for you? Yeah. Yeah. All of the, but I mean, it started out, you know, I was born in 82. So I really kind of, by the, you know, you're talking about the late eighties, early nineties when my kind of like, when I have concrete memories of like renting movies and being at the video rental store. And my first memories were, we had a little place, I think it became a chain. It started, it was called family video. Um, oh yeah. 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 Maybe. Yeah. And that was pre They have a Twitter but, account. Oh, they do? Nice. Yeah, I think there's only one left or maybe they, they folded, but uh, okay. yeah, they, 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 they might have one or two left. Yeah. Well, mine was situated in, it was kind of like a, leave it to beaver kind of you call it it was like in a little old 1950 shopping center next to um a pharmacy that made milkshakes in the back which sounds like leave it to beaver which yeah. my child is the same not. town okay yeah, yeah well yeah uh, so and, and, and i lived in the neighborhood adjacent so i would just get on my my huffy and i would go over to the to the vhs store to family video and um my first memories of vhs rental experience was being very fascinated with the cover art of the VHSs from the 80s. And I think as a kid, I was first drawn to bad horror movies. And, um, you know, when I say bad, I mean, you know, bad in a good way. But, like, I remember seeing, you know, like, creeps and, like, you know, weird, you know, uh, Critters, Critters 2, and, like, obviously Halloween and those movies too. But, like, the artwork of the 80s VHS thing just captivated my mind as a child. And I mean, obviously in hindsight, we know that that artwork was like so good at capturing your mind and, and it, it's now become, you know, a big nostalgic trip for people our age. But, um, but I, ha- I remember having a very strong reaction to those things and just spending hours looking at the, at the covers. And my mom, I remember my mom tapping her watch being like, okay, pick a movie. We got to go and stuff like that. And being like, I just want to look at the boxes and read all the boxes. Um, and I remember picking awful movies and my mom, I, I have a vivid memory of, I'm, I was nine. I still remember this. I was nine years old. I, my mom says, you know, you can pick two for the weekend. I think it's a Friday. And I, so I picked something terrible. It, it, it was like, you know, meet the feebles or something bad, something that was not appropriate for a nine year old or something like that. And, um, my mom just kind of scoffed and she's like, what is this garbage? She's like, if you're going to pick a movie, pick a good horror movie. And she was like, she picked out The Shining and she picked out The Exorcist. And she was like, these <laughs> damn. <are> worth watching. <laughs> yeah. And I remember being, and so we go home. I just still have such a vivid memory of this night. And it's like, we're sitting at home. The first one we watched was The Shining. And I remember when it gets to, you know, a nine year old has no understanding of, of the deeper meanings of The Shining. So I'm seeing it superficially and thinking, oh my God, look at all that blood flowing down the hallway and the twins are terrifying. And I'm like starting to shake in my boots. And I'm like, I don't know if I can handle this. By the time we get into the exorcist and she's stabbing herself with a crucifix, <laughs> my mom turns off the VHS immediately. And yeah, my mom, the classic, my mother is, I don't remember that part of the movie. How yeah, do you not? <laughs> yeah, and I remember I did not sleep for two weeks because every night I would go to bed and I was terrified I would become possessed by a demon. Um, and so, yeah, and so those, those, those memories that had a profound effect. I mean, I know it sounds horrifying, but it actually really had, you know, a positive effect on me. And my, my, to, to my mom's credit, you know, yes, maybe a nine-year-old shouldn't be watching The Shining or The Exorcist, 
However, it exposed me to, to good movies at a young age. And, um, and yeah, and then, you know, I graduated from family video to Blockbuster in the 90s when Blockbuster became a thing. And it was, I think my local Blockbuster was where I got to know actually the people who worked there, the teenagers who would work there, you know, when I was a kid. And, and, um, and yeah, and DVDs were coming around the mid-90s. And, and I think the first DVD that I remember owning or renting that actually like gave me quite an education with the DVD features, because that was a huge leap from the VHS to the DVD era, was like suddenly you could watch these interviews and meet the filmmakers in a weird way, right? You, did, you, you had a personal kind of connection with them. Um, but was the Matrix probably? I remember the Matrix DVD being a huge one. Yeah. Oh, do you have oh. the? You're looking around. Like, do you have the Matrix? Okay, I've got probably. Uh, you unlocked. A, you unlocked a lot with that one. I've got <laughs> every version of the Matrix. You know, Blu-ray, DVD, box set, all of them. Sure. I, uh, every copy of American Cinematographer and Cinefix. That ha- I mean, I have a lot of copies of both of those. I have almost every Cinefix. Once they went out of business, I went on a buying spree. But I remember uh, the Cinefix. I went to a local bookstore and the Cinefix. For some reason, they had Cinefix in the uh, magazine rack. Uh-huh. And I remember it had it had Neo on the front from um, Revolutions. And he was mm-hmm. flying. And I was like, what? And, and I'm looking through that. And I that was really formative for me as a kid was uh, really because Cinefix was like, high journalism for for vfx work (laughs) and so you know going through there and seeing like exactly how everything broke down really uh broke down the barrier to special effects films and stuff like made it seem much more accessible and the and the matrix was a film that for me as a kid was like so i didn't know that you could do that yeah you know before that it was liar liar and the mask and other, I guess other Jim Carrey films, I don't know, you know, Ghostbusters, whatever. And that all felt very um, untouchable for some reason, but the most complicated film in the world <laughs> at the yeah. time, the matrix really like opened me up to like, Oh, this, this could be cool and deeper. You know, I figured out the deepness later, but, but yeah, yeah. those, those, those matrix uh, special features, I absolutely destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the movie, it's interesting. I mean, I think what you're touching on and what the conversation in general is, is what's beneath there is just the way accessibility to information has changed since we were kids and, you know, and how much it probably changed before from our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation to when we were growing up in the eighties. It's like, yeah, I do remember those days where you, in order to find out anything about Hollywood, you know, especially as a kid growing up in Little Rock, Arkansas, by the way, like, the only connection you had were those DVDs and those magazines that you could find it at. For me, it was like books a million and like Barnes and Noble or whatever, um, whatever the chain was. And, you, you know, I remember Fangoria was a big one when I was a kid, because yeah. again, going back to the, the horror films, you know, that's just what captured your mind as a 12 year old boy. Um, and just being like, that was one of the few magazines I remember reading where I, I got a practical understanding of effects makeup and, like, oh, okay, there's like, there's a process here and an art to, you know, the, the making of horror films. It's not just scares and, you know, um, but yeah, but I mean, The Matrix was a seminal DVD uh, that definitely just, just opened the movie in general too, by the way, was, a, was such a big movie from my generation. Um, 
and I, I don't want to, I don't know how old you are, but obviously you be similar. 32. So I'm, I'm 39 going on 40, but, um, but you know, prior to the matrix, the biggest blockbusters were, you know, obviously they were the Jurassic parks or, um, you know, the Forrest Gumps, uh, and those were very classical Hollywood movies in a, in a way. Um, and you know, they, you know, Zemeckis and Spielberg were obviously influenced by, you know, the, the John Fords of the world and the, you know, the John Houston's and the, those, those classic era golden era Holly and all the Johns, all the Johns, exactly. All the Johns. Um, and then the matrix comes along, you know, and at the time, like, there's, there's no blockbuster that's provoking that kind of thought. You know, I just remember having my mind blown just thinking about the, the mechanics of the world. Do you know what I mean? It, you know, as fun as Jurassic Park was, you know, and I love Jurassic Park, beyond like, oh, what would it be like if we had to actually live with dinosaurs? You know, it's just a fun ride and a, and a really fun ride. But Matrix, man, uh, at the time, really made me think and i don't think i'd ever met a blockbuster up to that point that made me think like that um and just it was a great era i'm, I'm i mean every for every person of every age always looks back at their child or at, at previous eras and says you know man it was so much better back then but um the 90s was a great time to come up as a as a kid in movie i mean the independent cinema of the 90s you know the sundances and the tarantinos and the kevin smiths um you know the Chris Nolan, I remember seeing Memento and being like, that's another DVD where like, yeah, that's a DVDs were exposing me to independent cinema that just would never reach me at the local Cineplex in Little Rock. And, and um, DVDs culture was huge for me. I, it was definitely the beginning of my film education. And I think, um, I mean, I think it had a profound effect on Hollywood and you're seeing people like our age who came into Hollywood who, that's where our film school started. And, and many people, that's, that is their only film school. And I would argue you probably don't even need to go to film school. You just need to go back and watch DVDs from the 90s and you can get a full film school education. A hundred percent. You know, and also uh, that was the other thing about The Matrix was it felt like an indie film. Like those special features took away the varnish of that film and was and it's literally like, uh, I can't remember the guy who made the bullet time rig, but he's huge in VFX now. Um but just him going like, yeah, we put a bunch of cameras in a circle. I hope it works. You know, like that kind of thing was just like, what? You're just winging it out here for this film. Um, yeah. And actually, I got to see it. Uh, we'll get off the Matrix after this. But uh, I got to see it in theaters when they did the 20th anniversary <clears throat> re-release. And when you have it like on a massive screen in 4K, like remastered, you really can see like the opening scene where Trinity's in that hotel room. You can really see it's just four pieces of plywood that are painted shitty. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 4K you know, effect on a lot of the older, the, the restoration films. I definitely, I went back and saw E.T., a restored, you know, screening of E.T. And go back and look at the corners of that, that those frames and you can see a lot of the, a lot of the, you know, the glue, the super glue and the, <laughs> the, the, you know, the string holding that, that production together. But it, you know, it's the magic of cinema, right? It doesn't take much to, to captivate the mind and transport you to a different place where pretty soon you're not even, you don't even care about the creases. You just, yeah, the matrix yeah. is definitely that for me as well. The, uh, you know, on, on frame and reference, we've talked a lot about how, uh, 
me and a bunch of other DPs were like, we should all get together and figure out how to buy the rights to all the special features and make a streamer just for that. Because oh God, if that existed, I would be all over that. I would subscribe to that in a heartbeat. Think because like in my head, I bet the rights to special features are cheap. Like no one's no one's out here going like you got to pay me a million dollars a month to stream behind the scenes of of, uh, you know, pick a film, even Die Hard. You know, who's who's going to. Yeah, yeah, I think I think the challenge would obviously be the the, um, curating all the all the assets and everything from all the different distributors. and, And, you know, that would be sometimes probably a needle in a haystack. Um, to find all the licensing rights and everything, but oh my God, if there was a streaming service with with just special features, that would be that would be made. That's a great idea. I support it. Go do it. I, I will subscribe. I, I uh, see every time I mention it, someone gets real stoked on it. I'm like, fuck, I got to do it, man. Like well, that's, I got to find someone who can help me figure this out because I think it's like, what up, puppies? Yeah, I got dogs. They're gonna come hang out with us till they stop um, scratching the door, but. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the DVD culture was definitely a thing. And also, uh, nope, lost that thought completely. Um, we'll, we'll pivot to, uh, to music because that's another thing that I've, um, thought a lot about and talk. I grew up as a drummer and, um, I, there, there, I've had people help elucidate this, uh, sort of connection between film and music, but I'm wondering if you could sort of tell me about how you, uh, the analogies that you draw as a musician to um, filmmaking, because obviously editing is a little more one-to-one, but yeah. directing and writing, I'm sure there are things from music that aren't, um, you know, uh, directly immediate, you know, like uh, telling a story in a song is just like writing a, a script. Okay. Yeah. But there's other things like music musically that I think are valuable. Yeah. I mean, I, I, in a way, I think music is probably the the most sophisticated art form on the humans have created. In a, in a in a way, I mean, music is just so subcutaneous, and it and it gets in your bones in a way that like no other art form does. And I, I love film because it combines everything. Right? You've got visuals, auditory experience. You've got um, you know characters and a story and all these things that are that are working in tandem, but there's just a, a beauty to music, even at its simplest form that can, that can move you. You know what I mean? Like even as something as simple as having a bucket to, to slap on, somebody can turn that into music, right? Um, you could do that with film and you could do, you could probably pick up a bucket and an iPhone and make a, a movie, but it doesn't work the same way. And it just doesn't affect you the same way. I think, you know, music for me, it just plays such an integral role in ideas um, and idea creation, um, inspiration. I'm constantly, I sit at, most of the day on my computer, I have Spotify going. Now that we have Spotify, where we have a, <laughs> an endless library of music, um, I'm, I'm always listening to music and, and thinking. That's a big part of my day creatively, is just listening to music and thinking. And it, yeah. I mean, isn't it beautiful? Like music, you can hear one, you know, collection of notes together and it spurs this visual in your brain that is so strong and so vivid. Um, it doesn't even exist, right? It's just, it's just your brain interpreting sound, 
which creates a, some kind of nostalgic trigger in your brain that illuminates a story. And like, there's a magic to that that just like cinema will never have, right? Um, well, it's the it's the horror film thing of like when you don't see the monster, it's scarier. Right. You know, when right. you don't when you don't have a visual component, the music really can uh, not infect. That's the wrong word, but it really gets in your head and, and creates. When it happens in your head, it's much more powerful than when you see it. Yeah, there is there is no computer on planet Earth more powerful than the the imagination and the mind. You, you know, you're never going to create visual effects that are ever going to outdo what the human brain can do with the imagination. So, like you know, music taps into that thing in our brain, that imaginative side of our brain, in a way just that's wholly unique. But you know how that plays into the process of filmmaking for me and you know yes you're right editorially it's very practical you know when we talk about rhythm you talk about you're a drummer you talk about four four and three three these are those are two different feelings those are two different rhythms and that has a huge effect on editorial but i'm a big five four guy oh five four nice i love a five four (laughs) yeah but um but you know when it comes to writing and directing and making movies um Music is just always there. Music is always part of the process. And, you know, yes, you can, music is storytelling and they're great. I actually tend to be drawn to songwriters who are storytellers. That's, you know, probably my favorite music. Um, You know, the the Bob Dylan's of the world, the Towns Van Zandt's and those guys are, um, and gals uh, of the, that era were my favorite musicians. Um, But, you know, it's not about story. Like you can listen to a, a, you know, a movement of Bach, right? And like suddenly you can be transported to a place where you have ideas. So for me, when I'm writing, it's it's all about music. And a lot of that music that, that I'm listening to as I'm interpreting and, and kind of uh, fever dreaming, I guess I would say, is 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 simpatico. Like it's never it's never not working in tandem. So a lot of times I'll be thinking about motifs. Uh, like for my film, The Send-Off, like music was a huge aspect of the movie, even though you probably wouldn't watch that movie and go, oh, that's a music movie. It is a music movie to me. And, and like, you know, 1950s, like, you know, jazz was a huge inspiration for that. And I, that's what I was listening to when I was writing and it, and it seeped into the bones of that story and ultimately created a rhythm to that story and ultimately shaped character. You know what I mean? There, there, some of the characters are born specifically from that era um, and wouldn't be the same if I wasn't listening to Dave Brubeck and like, you know, Charles Mingus and stuff like that, which were huge inspirations for my story. Um, and for me, that's everything. Music is every part of the creative process for me. It's, it's, it's always there. And, um, you know, when you're a musician and you, you actually learn the practical side of playing an instrument, you do start to create a rhythm and, 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 a, and a voice musically that becomes part of your everyday. So like, you know, the way I put together a scene, not just editorially, but as a director, the way I let actors, you know, find a rhythm is probably influenced by, you know, the way I play guitar or the way I hear, you know, the way I relate to punk music from the eighties or like, it's just part of everything. It seeps into the fabric of the whole creative process for me. And I, I don't know, I can't see a world 
where music didn't inform something I was doing. It's just part of everything. Yeah. It's that, um, I've noticed, I, I don't really direct, but even if I'm, you know, part of a, a narrative film, I will, mm-hmm. you know, I was, I was first AC a, a couple weeks ago on a shoot and, you know, I'm pulling focus on the little monitor, but like, I'm, I'm like physically like moving when, when I want quote unquote the actor to like yeah. move now or say something now. I'm like, I'm like actively moving my body yeah. in the same way that music makes me like, or like drumming makes me want to like lean in, you know, drumming, unless you're uh maybe Danny Carey, you're not like <laughs> locked up, you know, <laughs> Joey Jordanson, just straight up strapped to the thing. But it's a very, you know, that, um, internal rhythm that you're talking about, I think is, is, uh, yeah. there's a physicality kids? to it. What's that? Do you have kids? No, no. So I've got two kids. I've got a four year old. And the four-year-old is getting to the age where he's starting to take to music and sing music and have preference. Mm -hmm. Um, And I see it in my kid, but the music, don't you think the music you, you, you listened to as a child probably got into your psyche and is part of, you know, like I see it with my kid already. And for me, I remember being four years old, five years old, driving to school, my mom listening to Simon and Garfunkel and being like, it's the first thing I could remember listening to being like, Oh, I, I like these songs. I can sing along to them. Um, and it wasn't, you know, Disney, you know, or whatever, whatever children are being inundated with, you know, musically. Um, it was the first album I remember looking at and seeing, you know, Paul Simon and Garfunkel just like looking at them and going like, whoa, these guys made this music. They wrote these songs and like, who is Cecilia? And like, what is a bridge under troubled water mean? Like, I, I, I just, think those things when you're young um, get inside you and it becomes who you are and you start to walk through the world in a way that reflects the things you consume. Yeah. You know, for me, it's, uh, I have a very, I wouldn't even call it a memory cause I can't really attach it to any specific event, but there is a feeling in me that feels like a memory and it's driving through foggy San Francisco, listening to Motown. Yeah. Like wow. just the, the, like the four right tops. There. <laughs> Bro, it's, it's something that it it is a feeling that gives me frisson when I like can actually get there. And it's sure. something that I've never been able to touch since the nineties, you know, like I've never seen a movie. I've never experienced it again, especially cause I haven't been back to the Bay in a long time really. But, uh, it, it, it is a visceral, um, experience. And, you know, you just put on oddly enough, the, uh, four brothers, remember that Mark yeah. Wahlberg film, oh, four yeah. brothers, that soundtrack slaps uh i have to go back and reacquaint myself with the four brothers soundtrack i'll I'll admit i don't remember it far better than the film Ah, the movie i like the movie the movie was good the movie was good but the soundtrack is incredible um and uh yeah you plug that thing in on on a on a foggy day in the bay area and it just feels like san francisco to me for some reason yeah um that's the beauty of music right you don't have to go back to the bay area because that music will unlock that in your brain and transport you there immediately it's just that's the power of music and, and, um, and in the, in the beauty of music and film working together is like they can work in tandem and, and just affect you greatly and take you to places that your brain has never been to. I mean, that's kind of part of the, the, you know, Tarantino got famous for many reasons, but like, I think a lot of the things that like blew people's mind about Tarantino in the early nineties was like his ability to use music to evoke nostalgia in a way. 
and to play counter to what you would expect the music to, to do, right? You know, yeah, it's he would be able to classically. Yeah, just like he would somehow manage to put like, you know, Motown in a scene where somebody's being murdered, you know, as, and, it, and it just transforms the whole meaning of the song and the way you see the song. And yeah, and that's the power of cinema and music, right? It, it goes back to the idea of jazz, like you were saying, it's the notes you don't play, you know, the juxtaposition uh, of, of notes. So the juxtaposition of a very happy song to someone getting their, their throat slit, you know, sure. is horrific, you know, whereas a video yeah. of someone getting their throat slit is just icky. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's interesting. It's uh, yeah. Music is powerful and it, it uh, yeah, it, I, I, I love music and the, the discovery and the, and uh, I just love everything about music. I mean, I love everything about cinema, but and they they're brother and sister to me. But um, but music, I don't know. In some ways, it's just it's primal and it's simple and it's it's uh, it's just the most effective art form. I think. Yeah, I uh, I kind of wanted to touch because you have you have a large CV as an editor. Um, yeah, I wanted to touch on sort of the more practical side of that one, mm. not to keep us in music land the whole time the whole time, mm. but when doing client work, do you have any tips on finding stock music <laughs> that uh-huh. works with what the client uh, is looking for? Oh, yeah. Okay. When it comes to editing and music, that's like, it's the most challenging aspect of an edit edit sometimes. Um, more so in my commercial experience than in my, right cinema experience, you know, um, if you're cutting a movie, there's a million movies to pull comp music from and you go, okay, you know, we want this movie to sound like, you know, Weekend at Bernie's, great. Well, we have the Weekend at Bernie's soundtrack we can go back to, right? Um, When you're doing commercial work and you're working for a client that has very specific needs, but let's be honest, they don't know what their needs are either. They need you to illuminate what their needs are a lot of the time which is part of the job and the challenge uh, is, yeah, music is challenging. Um, I don't have a go-to. I, I, what I have is a hard drive of music that I've accumulated over the years and albums that I've thrown on a big hard drive. And I'll go to that. I've set up a search query kind of thing in there that I can look for stuff. And I, I mean, honestly, my mind, I use a lot of times, um, you know, Spotify is, again, uh, an unbelievably good um, place of reference to find things, you know, not necessarily things that you can immediately stab into your into your cut because you're not going to be able to license them all the time or afford them. But it can be a great way to, to get the tastemakers at production companies to understand what they're looking for. Because obviously, the, the, not obviously, but maybe this isn't obvious, but I think the biggest challenge in any medium of art is tone and and tone is that thing that is constantly indescribable but also everybody knows in their brain right so they think they know what it should be but then when you see the thing that you imagine in your brain then the tone isn't always sometimes the art has its own tone that it shows you and and that's the challenge of music right is that music is you know you can listen to motown and you're going to see the bay area when you were a kid driving into san francisco I'm going to listen to Motown and I'm going to see that time I got in a fight with my 13 year old girlfriend and broke up and had my heart broken. And we just feel two totally different things. One is nostalgia. Well, both are nostalgia, but one is heartbreak and one is, you know, um, 
you know, uh, heartwarming kind of thing. And and, it, and that's the challenge in music is just everybody interprets, you know, music differently. Um, so yeah, I don't have like a go-to there, are, you know, now there are the stock sites like Artist.io and, um, you know, uh, Epidemic, I've used those on commercial stuff. Yeah. Um, and they're great. pretty good too. What's that? Music bed has some. Yeah, music bed I've used as well. Yeah, and th- those things are they're great and they work re- very well for commercial product. Um, you know, but when it comes to narrative work, um, you know, what's the expression? Uh, flattery is the greatest form of I don't know, whatever it is. Uh, 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 copying is the greatest. Copying form of is the great. Yeah, so copying is the greatest form of flattery. I, we, I just go back to old soundtracks and I'll go back to four brothers now and, and be like, okay, got to listen to the soundtrack and I'll probably add it to my library and go, okay, next time I'm in a scene where I need Motown or I need, I don't even know what the soundtrack is. It's, but, it's uh, all Motown. Yeah. It's just like the greatest hits of Motown. Yeah. That, 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 that library builds on my hard drive. And then it, you kind of just, um, you know, probably the same way that your brain codifies movies and you have a whole thing in your brain for, what 1998 was like or 99 was like when the matrix came out and what you were doing and where you were, you know, what you were watching, you can kind of codify by year. What, what, when movies came out, same thing with my brain with music, I can go like, okay, um, this scene is about, you know, someone robbing a convenience store. Well, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be a blues track, (laughs) Uh, you know, whatever it is, but that's, that's kind of how I, when I'm editing, how I go through music and how I approach it. It's, kind of well, memory. Yeah. And, and you're kind of touching on something that I've talked about a lot um, on the frame and reference, which is, uh, well, I'll tell you this story to tell you that one um, to quote Ron white. Uh, mm. I've noticed on, you know, like forums, Reddit, whatever YouTube, mm. a lot of people learning editing mm. get to a certain point and they go, you know, they figured out the program and then they start going, um, Hey, can anyone point me in the direction of advanced editing techniques? Mm-hmm. And I always kind of go, if you're asking that you, you're never going to find it because that you found, you know, all the techniques, there's no techniques in yeah. it. You know, there's the program you're thinking of, you learned on the program. Yeah. Once the program's done, once you have premiere locked on or, or final cut or whatever, now you have to reach inward. Yeah. And that's, that's the advanced technique is the feeling of the edit, yeah. not a J cut. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's all, that's art in general, right? That, that, that's where style comes and you know, not to harp on music uh, and make this a music podcast when we're talking about filmmaking, but uh, you know, they're all instruments, whether you're cutting on an Avid or you're shooting something with a, you know, an Alexa, they're all instruments. You have to learn the instrument as a, as a, as an artist, you have to learn how to play the instrument, but what makes the, artist interesting is not how you know you play in a, it is how you play in a life it's not that you know which button does which and that you know where you know an a note versus a c note is on a piano it's like how you play the a note and the c note and the this goes back to what i was saying about like music getting in our bones as children and and, and not just music but art in general and the what we consume shaping us that's advanced technique advanced technique is the style you bring to it and you're going to bring your style in a way that i will never bring my style uh what's interesting style wise is obviously not up to us it's up to whoever's interpreting the thing we're creating but you know if you're making an edit yeah and you're looking 
you've learned, you know, how to splice and do a J cut and roll and trim and all that stuff, and you're looking to to advance further, then you the only way to advance further is to just keep making things and discovering yeah. who you are as an artist. Um, yeah, I guess in that way, there really, I mean, there is no school that's going to teach you advanced anything. The advance comes with learning by practically doing things. Yeah, I, I will say I'll, I uh, will lean off on uh, those kids a little bit because I understand <clears throat> the um, frustration of wanting to learn more and not because, you know, it's easy to say, we'll just do more. It's like, well, sure. if, yeah. you know, these. I think, unfortunately, the internet has made uh, information so accessible that yeah. the um, knee-jerk reaction to go on a forum and go, can someone teach me this? And if the answer is, well, you just got to edit more stuff. If their knee-jerk reaction is to go online and look it up, they're not going to find a string out that they can cut up and, and work with. I see that asked all the time on YouTube videos. Hey, can you give me the stock footage or like the footage you sure. shot? I want to try to color it or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that is the challenge with editing, right? Um, funny because my now that you say that, my film school, and not everybody can go to film school. Not everybody can afford to go to film school. Not everybody needs to go to film school. But, um, you know, I remember in my editing 101 class, they gave us the, the heads and tails stuff of an episode of Friends. Um, and so we had footage from Friends, and I was like, I don't know where they got it. or like. I think the, I had that too. Maybe it was like something that they sent out to film schools, you know, that like maybe the production or ace or whoever was. And, and that's, I got on the app and the first thing I cut was an episode of friends. It was like a three camera thing, which is interesting, but um, no, you're right. And, and the, the internet is, I don't want to sound like an old man shaking my fist at clouds. Um, but the internet's yeah, changed enough where I think the, the, the fist needs to be shook a little bit. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it was great for a while, wasn't it? We had it good. And, and now it's taken off. It's just become this, you know, um, this massive beast that can't really be contained. And there's a lot of great things about the internet and you can access information in ways that you never could when we were children. Uh, and this go, we've mentioned like goes back to the DVD era of bonus features of accessibility to information is fantastic. Um, but, but you need good information. <laughs> well, yeah, you need good information. You need people that you can trust sources you can trust. Um, and in this internet world, I've noticed a lot, and it's something I've thought about a lot. And, and I say, I say this with you know friends who do this for a living. But you got to watch out for like false prophets too. Like there's a lot of false prophets in this business who will show up on Instagram or something and say, "Want to learn filmmaking in seven days? Subscribe to my class." And I'm not saying that those can't be valuable, and I'm certainly not saying that those people uh, are beneath me in some way. Like, and they aren't. I'm not saying that at all. They may have really great information uh, to, to purvey, but you just have to be careful and mindful that like the information out there in a lot of this internet world is meant to make a buck off you. And, yeah. and film school is just a more sophisticated version of that, obviously. Um, and again, there are good things that you can glean from film school and there are things that you probably don't need to, to glean from film school, but you know, you have to find the right information. And you, you have to, you know, I, it does sound flippant to just say, go make more things, but um, you have to find ways to make things. And like, and part of this business, if you want to do this for a living, is that it's very competitive. And, you know, there are 
you know, a narrow target of opportunities out there and millions more vying for the wanting that opportunity, you know? Um, and so having the type of personality who's going to persist and find ways to create things like we've all, I mean, we've all heard this silly story of like the Spielberg with an eight millimeter camera, you know, in his backyard making movies, like to Spielberg's credit, he found a way to make things in an era when nobody was able to make things. And well, I'm sure you and I were doing the same shit with mini TV or VHS. Absolutely. Right? Mini TV was huge for me. Like that was the first kind of discovery of like how editing worked for me was like putting two, you know, mini DVD cameras together or two VHSs together and hitting start, stop, pause, record. Um, but like when I say go do more, um, part of that, that challenge is, is, is pushing yourself to find what avenues to make more things because every artist who's ever existed has had the challenge of figuring out how to make the thing they wanted to make. And like, whether it's a painting or it's, you know, a movie, it's hard. Um, it's not easy. And, and, and you have to, you have to have that, that gene in you that pushes you to, to just keep trying to figure out how to make things. And I, I to me, that's like 90% of my creative journey has just been, I feel in some ways like an engineer, like I'm just constantly trying to learn how to build a house that doesn't fall down, let alone a house that looks beautiful. Um, it's just trying to figure out how to build the right foundation and put the right hardwood floors in so that people can walk around in the house and want to be there. Um, and that comes with persistence and, you know, the democratization of filmmaking these days does give people the avenue. I mean, it's silly as you always hear these we well, have an iPhone in your hand, go make a movie. Um, I laugh at that a lot of times because it, it, it is flippant in and of itself, but it is also true. Like you do have a film, you know, a camera in your hand and you can go make things and, and advanced editing techniques, by the way, can be had with iPhone footage. You don't have to have friends to do that. You know, that was, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean like the, the one thing that I remember David Fincher was being uh, given some like BAFTA award or something like that, a big old interview. Oh. And he had mentioned like, don't you have an iPad like you? And he's it again, flippant, but he's right. You can write the script on the iPad. You can film on the iPad and the cameras on the new iPads especially are great. Oh, yeah. um, even, you know, they even have that fake shallow depth of field that you can adjust in post, which is insane. Yeah. yeah the cinematic um, setting or whatever. Yeah. Whatever that I've never used it, but it looks crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you can, you know, you got premiere rush and instead of editing on a cell phone, which would be ass, you know, iPads big enough that like you could do a, a, a not be too annoyed with the interface to edit what you just shot. You know, yeah. um, that that capability is there. I think it's it's uh, it's just hard to say, come up with a story, you know? Well, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, sure. I mean, that's, the, you know, that's the, the challenge of film. I, I would say I just thought about this film to practice. Copy a movie. Yeah, like just shot for shot, copy it, see what happens. I, I did that a lot. I'm, I would push that even further and say with a screenplay. Um, I, you know, when I first started writing, I would just take other screenplays and I would kind of copy them word for word. I would I would write them in my own way. I would read them and then rewrite a scene in my own way without thinking about the the scene, and and that helped me tell stories and and just learn on a practical level how to structure a screenplay and do things um you could also do that with movies like if you watched 
you know, say you and David Fincher, let's say you just watch Gone Girl and you wanted to watch a scene of Gone Girl and you take the scene where, you know, Rosamund Pike, and spoiler alert, goes Abe <laughs> on Neil Patrick Harris. Okay, so there's a scene where, you know, you're watching a, a, a woman who has a secret divulge a big secret and, and, and do something heinous. Watch that scene, then go put pen to paper and write that scene the way you would write it. Then go online, find the, the Gone Girl screenplay and see how David Fincher wrote it. Um, and you will get a lesson in how to tell stories and how to write visually and how to, you know, make films. And again, it's just about with the abundance of information out there, there are a billion ways to learn the craft. And um, and there's really no excuse other than, you know, self-sabotage um, yeah. in not in not making things and doing things. If that's what your heart wants to do, if that's what you want to want to pursue. Yeah. The actually, I will say the uh, Gone Girl Blu-ray. If you get the specific version, has the script with it. Oh, there you go. So there, this is yeah. You don't even have to Blu-ray online for it. Yeah. Blu-rays are the best. Um, that all does dovetail us nicely into talking about uh your film, The Send Off. How did <laughs> you uh make that transition from editing to directing? Because I I I know for a fact you can learn a lot about other people's jobs as an editor Be- becoming an editor made me a much better dp i can say that <laughs> yeah i mean i tell everybody who wants to direct you should edit first um or at least learn how learn the craft of editing um and i kind of knew that going in sort of that's kind of why i became an editor in film school well, i became an editor in film school because i knew how to use approach so like yeah. I came up from bands and I could record, so I knew how to use software. So when I got to college, everybody was like looking at Avid like it was Egyptian, you know, hieroglyphics. And I was like, oh, I can learn Avid. And if I can use Pro Tools, I can learn Avid. So I just became the de facto Avid guy and I started editing everybody's short I was films. the After Effects guy. There you go, yeah. <laughs> For ed- yeah. everyone in my class was just like, hey, I've got a title sequence I need, here you go. There you go, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. You know, that's how I became uh, I'm an editor, but I knew I'd always wanted to write and direct. I mean, that was always the goal. Um, but yeah, I just figured if I get a career as an editor, then I'll get a, a better film school education than I would ever get at film school. And I'll get to see where kind of the sausage is made um, and how it's made. Um, and that turned out to be true, like probably the best choice I ever made. Um, so I left film school and uh, came out to L.A. from Texas, knew nobody. Um, and just started sending my resume out and ended up getting a job, uh, working at a company called Butum, Butum Murray or Bunham Murray. I don't know how you say it, but they produce real world road rules, all those reality shows in the nineties, late nineties. And that was the first job I ever had. I was like working on those shows as uh, a logger transcribing. You yes. know, yeah. Oh yeah. It's, tough job, it's a but, lot of log and capture. <laughs> oh my gosh. Are you kidding? Yeah. I would work the night shift too, from six to six or whatever. And um, I would go in every night and, you know, transcribe those college kids having a blast, and, um, and which was fine. It paid the bills, and I knew nobody in L.A., and I, it was my foot in the door, as I thought. Um, while that was going on, I was, this is back in the Craigslist days, I was responding to Craigslist ads for jobs and found my way over to working with Jerry Zucker, um, who directed Airplane, um, yeah. First Night, Ghost, some, some you know, good movies and um, kind of a seminal comedy guy. Um, he was starting a, a web comedy company and I jumped on to, this is before the Funny or Die days. 
um, he was like, kind of had the forethought to say, oh, I think there's an opportunity to do short form comedy on the internet. He was right. We just didn't do it the right way. And Funnier Die came along like a year or two later and just killed the business, right? They became the, the kind of um, paragon for like that kind of outfit. But, um, but what working with it, Jerry Zucker gave me was the opportunity to do what I, what I had always planned was watch over the shoulder of a talented filmmaker and see what, what he or she was doing. And truth be told, like learn from their mistakes because that's the greatest gift of editing is that you can learn from other people's mistakes. And, and that is almost as valuable as watching what like Jerry Zucker does with a specific theme because this is again getting back to personal style, but like what Jerry Zucker does with the scene is never really going to be what I do with the scene because we're just different creative types. But like, you know, watching how he'd pivot from what we did on set to what we did in the edit, ooh, that was valuable. And I learned a valuable lesson. And and also editing from a directing standpoint, and this is a long-winded way to get to your your question, but um, editing taught me um, efficiency. So knowing exactly what you need, a lot of directors, as I'm sure you know, as a, as a DP and as a camera assistant, will just hose the scene down and not have any idea what they're doing uh, with the scene, which is fine. That's a way to do something. And it relies greatly on a talented editor to, to find that in, in post. But like coming out of editorial with that kind of brain, when I step on set as a director, I, I just don't think that way. I know exactly what we need. And, you know, because I'm pretty efficient, it also gives me a little wiggle room to play here and there when you're running tight on days, you know, where you're like, okay, I know we're only probably going to get three takes here, but if we're efficient, then that third take, we can just do whatever the hell we want and see what happens. And then really magical stuff can happen. Um, how I segued from editing into directing um, was uh, I, I got lucky. Uh, I'm not even going to lie. I got very lucky. Um, by the way, anybody who's successful in this industry is extraordinarily lucky. It's all yeah, luck. Right. I mean, it's not all luck, but it's a huge amount of luck. It's the but final the, key. It's the final key. The The very first movie I ever edited ended up going to Sundance. And um, it was the first feature I ever did. And, um, and it won, it was in competition, and it won the Best Cinematography Prize, and it won the Alfred P. Sloan Prize, and then was nominated for a couple of Spirit Awards. Oh. Um, and that's, it was just crazy luck because it was a Craigslist ad that I responded to and the director had never made a movie and she didn't have famous actors or a huge budget. And we just made a low budget movie that ended up, you know, having a life and thank goodness that life gave me an editing career um, that put me on a trajectory of doing more kind of Sundancey movies. Mm. So when you say I have a very long CV as an editor, I spent years editing kind of Sundance dramas. That's what, that's what my, my kind of, niche was um and i love doing that i really do and then i transitioned later into the commercial world and, and music videos and um and tv um but along the way always knowing that i wanted to write and direct so like probably three or four movies in after cutting probably my fourth feature i started really writing you know with the intent of okay i'm gonna write my first feature that i'm going to go make um i kind of knew with the the blueprint looked like at that point. And I was like, I can do this. Um, and I wrote a script um, called The Killing Kind, which um, a friend of mine um, ended up reading. And it, it just, again, lucked. Just so happened to be that at the time he was reading that script, he was starting uh, up at a company called Fourth Floor Productions with a guy named Jeff Silver. 
Um, my buddy, his name is Chris Goble, and Chris and Jeff Silver were kind of like tandeming up to do a management company. Um, so they brought me on to represent me as a, as a writer. And it just so happens that that company kind of blew up and ended up uh, merging with some agents uh, who broke away from CA and some other places and became a co company called Grandview, which is now Grandview is um, one of the bigger management companies for creatives in the industry. It, it's out there a lot and they represent really talented filmmakers, um, much more talented than myself. But, but at the time I kind of got my foot in the door right when they were starting and they sent the script around and it got heat. And I met a producer who read that script, who said, this is great. Let's go make it. Um, and then we were off to the races and we started kind of packaging the movie and trying to put it together with actors and um, and it was an exhaustive process that took mm, two years really, but ended up getting you know some names attached to the movie and raised our money off of foreign sales. And I can tell you all about that process, but um, needless to say, it became the Hollywood cliche of literally a few weeks before we were about to shoot, the lead actor bailed and went to go do something else and the whole movie fell apart and uh, the rest is history. But so after that movie fell apart, I just feverishly started writing and writing more things and going, okay, I'm going to go get my first movie made. And, and it's been a long process and it's been, um, I've had, I've had other movies set. my second movie that I really wrote. Hold on. I'm going to open my door for my dog. Hmm. key right back up into exactly what it is so you can splice it together. Um, so the second movie I wrote, um, I, the same producer as the, the Killing Kind, um, we ended up taking it over to Sony Worldwide and setting it up there. And um, it was a little bit different than the Killing Kind. They gave us the green light, they gave us the money and they were like, here's a list of a hundred people. If you go get one of these hundred people in the lead role, then we're good to go. We made an offer, two offers, I think, and then the pandemic hit and it all fell apart. Yeah. <laughs> So it's been it's been a ride that really started kind of like five, six years ago. And um, and then the pandemic hit and, you know, I just said, I'm tired of waiting. I'm going to go make my own movie and I'll I've saved up some money. I'm going to go finance, you know, what I can of it and then go raise private equity from from people I know and go just make a movie and not have to sit around waiting on agents to say yes or, you know, a list of actors that we have to get. I'm just going to go make something with my friends and. That's what I did, and that's what kind of the send-off is. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's that's kind of the old-school way that I remember. Uh, uh, I took a producing class before I went to college, and this guy goes, uh, all right, so here's how you're going to fund your film. Open up the yellow pages, go to D, and just start calling dentists because they have a lot <laughs> of money, and they're bored. And you just yeah. go, oh, uh, you, uh, you want to be a producer? And they're like, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, I'm not, it's, it's true. It's, it's funny. It's like um, the key investor on our movie, the send off uh, with myself in a, in a pharmaceutical, you know, a friend who had, who had a history in the pharmaceutical field. So yes, it's, it's cliche, but it, it can happen. Um, you know, there are many, many, many ways to put together a movie. And like I said, like we said before, there are many types of, I mean, making a movie on your iPhone, you can, do that if you have the you know the wherewithal to write a script and find friends who will do that um you know we made a micro budget movie the send off is micro budget um 
The Killing Kind, which I wrote, was like a $3 million movie. So there are two different types of scales of movie. Um, and, you know, there's a million, you know, there's many ways to skin a cat, as they say. I feel like that, now that I say that, that phrase is in some, in the future is not going to be acceptable. Is it okay I to say that? I, I mean, it's okay because it's a phrase and it's like not problematic in this in the traditional sense. But I've always wondered. I need to look up the etymology of that because who is skinning cats? cats? And why is that a phrase? I don't know. I just thought about. It. I'm like, who who colloquialized skinning cats? I mean, there's some psychopath out there that uh, that was skinning cats in the late 1800s. <laughs> Well, and I wonder if it's like, you know, herding cats is supposed to uh, yeah. make you think of like a difficult process. Maybe skinning a cat is a similar like difficult process or something weird like that. You know, like it's not a literal, it's a imaginative. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe it's just, yeah, it's just the fact that those cats will wiggle right out of your hands and they'll claw you. But anyway, the point is, uh, there are many ways to put together a movie and package a movie and you can go through the agency system and, and, and play, play ball that way and talk about foreign sales and stuff like that. Or you can just go find a dentist in the phone book. And it looks, dentists, are, it's not easy to find. So it, it's a challenge. I think, I think whatever, you know, my advice to anybody who wants to make a movie is you just got to find whatever way you can to make the movie. And ultimately for me, and this isn't true for everyone, but ultimately for me, you know, going and making my own movie on my own terms was absolutely the best choice. And I spent many years, you know, trying to package movies at, at, at the agency level and play ball. And, you know, I think showing people that I'm a capable filmmaker as a, as a director, not just an editor, was the right choice. And, and um, you know, now that the doors that I had opened before that, you know, the killing kinds of the sunny worldwide, now it's like, okay, there's other conversations to be had now that I've Show them, oh, okay, yeah, they're not fully taking their, a chance on just an editor who cut, you know, some, some Sundance movies. You know, it's it's something that a lot of <laughs> DPs are puppies. Puppies. Uh, it's something a lot of DPs have said on Frame and Reference, which is like, having a reel is great, but you're really going to be judged on the last project you did. And oh, yeah. if you don't have a project, you're not really going to go anywhere. It's better to have a project that you, you know, micro budgeted and figured out and have out and like, look, I did it from soup to nuts. It's done. Uh, and it's good. Better to do that than to, and have not have it look like a fucking Hollywood blockbuster or whatever, than to wait for your, uh, special moment. I will say I've seen screenshots of your film and it does look excellent. Like visually it looks, it looks very good. Thank you. We had a very, very talented cinematographer, Elijah Guest, who's our cinematographer. Um, and he did a great, he used to be a gaffer. So yes, it's well lit. Those are good. Elijah had a lot of experience as a gaffer. Um, but this is where Fincher was right and where he's correct. And even if he is being pedantic, uh, is that you can make a great story with an iPhone. And by the way, if you are capable, if you are able to make a good story with an iPhone that transcends the low budgetness of it, all the people are going to go, whoa, geez, okay. If you could hook me with an iPhone and a couple of your friends, you know, then, okay, what can you do with an Alexa and, you know, yeah. a little bit of money? Um, people do have those conversations. And, and, and I, I, say, I say it to my other friends, it's, it's just like, if you don't make a movie, you are not a filmmaker, right? right. 
You right. have to make a movie to be a filmmaker. If it doesn't matter if you the movie exists on your iPhone and you know you're running out of storage and you're sh shooting shots from your iPhone over to your computer, or if you have a big camera and a post house, it doesn't matter. You know, you need to make things to make things, and making one thing will beget making another thing. And a lot of times, I know myself, is we get a little bit myopic and we get a little bit frozen in worrying about how things will be received and and you think that oh making a the films i want to make let's say the films you want to make are like the matrix and you want to be the wachowski and you want to do those things well it can be really daunting to to look at those and go like how do i make something look like that and that can actually be the death of any good idea is like when you look at something and go how do i make something like the wachowski you're kind of looking at it the wrong way. You need to look at it like, how can I make something that feels like the Wachowski? That like yeah. feels like it evokes the tone. And that's, those are hard questions to figure out. And that takes years of, of crafting your form to discover those things. But if you don't make anything, you, you can't craft the form and you can't get to that place where you're making something that evokes the same feelings and thought as the Wachowski. So in a weird way, like it's, human nature to look at things and go like, I want to be David Fincher or I want to be Martin Scorsese. Um, but in a weird way that can almost be hindering. You've got to like figure out a way to, to shed those, those thoughts of, you know, I'm trying to hit this trajectory because the truth is it's like a chemtrail. The second that trajectory is, is taken, it doesn't exist anymore. That was Scorsese's or Fincher's trajectory. Your trajectory is going to be totally different. And you can't try to force a square peg into a round hole because it will just never work. You've just got to forge your own path and forging your own path means just making things. Yeah. Well, plus you're not going to, you're not going to make your matrix first. You got to make your bound or your following or, uh, what's, uh, I had a third one anyway, you know, those first films, <laughs> oh, yeah. clerks, you know, you got to make your clerks before you can make your dogma. videotapes, like, there's all these, um, it's kind of the problem though, isn't it? Because as, as artists ourselves, we get enamored with this notion of uh, the one hit, not the one hit wonder, the, 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 the boy wonder or the, you know, the girl wonder who comes in and makes the first film that just slams and just like everybody talks about. And you get this notion in your head that that's what you need to be. And it's hard because the conversation in our business gets so guided towards those voices and it, it becomes very easy to, you know, only see that in the news cycle. I mean, right now, let's be truthful. Everybody's talking about Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. Like, guess what? There's a lot more going on in Hollywood than Will Smith <laughs> slapping Chris Rock. Yeah. We just, we just see Chris Rock and Will Smith at every turn. And now talking about the, the bad side of the internet is that, the internet creates an echo chamber when it comes to those stories. So like that can seep into our own understanding of the business and, and filmmaking and go, Oh, I have to be David Fincher or I have to be, you know, um, whoever I have to be, uh, Diane Bell, who was, who was the filmmaker who I worked with on Obsolidia, which is the film that went to Sundance. It, you get these ideas in your head that, that you have to be that. But there's a million other filmmakers out there who are really talented, you know, that that have their own path and have forged their own thing. And 
didn't make a hit right out of the bat, you know, and didn't, it took years. I mean, what, who's the, I forget his name. I like him a lot. Um, personally, um, Joe, uh, he did drinking buddies. Um, um, Joe, I can't remember his name right off the bat. He's a really smart cat, but he's famous for having made 15 micro budget, $5,000 movies before he ever got into Sunday. And every year we do this thing where, especially I do as an editor of those types of movies, is I'm always working with a filmmaker who's submitting to Sundance in September, and they're banking their whole creative lives on getting into Sundance. And it's just such a rat race. It's not the way to make a career. It's not a way to hone your craft as a filmmaker. Um, and, and it's just, it's changing big time because as we said, like the democratization of filmmaking is, has opened up new avenues and like Sundance, you know, what Sundance meant in 1992 is very different than what Sundance means today. And, you know, now, gosh, you have short of the week, you have Vimeo staff picks, you have, um, you know, digital distribution, you can sell your movie to vertical or you can sell your movie to, um, you know, 1091, Utopia, all these different avenues to get your movie out there um and yeah and this goes back to guess what if you don't have a movie you're not going to be able to sell it to utopia or even put it up on your personal website for people to see so like yeah. you have to make things for people to see otherwise um you're never going to be in the conversation you're never going to continue making things you got to put one foot in front of the other totally yeah the uh i'd How love to see with that by the way <laughs> that was perfect we're just going to chop that yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I'd love to see less conversation about the Oscars and more conversation about everything everywhere all at once. Right. I haven't seen it yet, but I've only heard amazing things. I think those guys are so talented. That uh, movie. So I got invited to the, uh, the IMAX like screening where oh, wow. uh, Michelle Yeoh and, and key, um, what's his face. I don't know his last name. Uh, <laughs> were there and, and the producer and they did like a Q and A and shit. And that is a fantastically weird, lovely, like, uh, uh, action packed, funny, weird, great film. <laughs> I cannot yeah. say like, it's, it's exactly what it's such a breath of fresh air for how like out there it is. Um, yeah. It's and yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis is in it. Great film. Highly recommend it. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, are you familiar with their work? Daniel's, I mean, they're yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd seen, uh, I'd seen uh, Swiss Army Man. And Were you at all? Bef uh, before that, I think I only knew them as music video and commercial director or music video directors. Really. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, go back and watch some of their early music videos, and you will, you will see the seeds of the the, the tone of Swiss Army Man and um, this latest one. Um, and you, everything you, everywhere. Yeah, it's a hard everything everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. What one yeah. of the emo titles? I love emo titles. Um, yeah, yeah. But um, but uh, you can absolutely see from the get go that those those guys had a irreverence for you know for logic um, in a really smart way uh, that was yeah that I'm not the least bit surprised those guys are killing it and making really smart intelligent movies and they're a great example of like you know they were just making music videos and they were VFX artists and they found very clever ways to express themselves, uh, making sometimes minute long videos. Um, but this is what I mean. It's like, it's all changed. It's like, 
we don't live in a world where you need, you know, studios to like expose yourself. And, and, and that's a weird way of putting it, not expose yourself, <laughs> but like expose your art. Um, and you, you know, um, yeah, it's just, it's beautiful that movies like that. A24 has obviously become, you know, the pinnacle of art house American cinema and, and they're great at, you know, finding artists with singular visions. Um, and, you know, I'm, not, I'm really excited to see that one. I, I, I feel like, I mean, again, not to be the old man who shakes his fist at the clouds, but I just feel like everything's gotten so homogenized. And, yes. and um, this is, I'm telling you, this is the antidote to the homogeny. Of, I, I um, hope so. I, I think it's... A24 is probably one of those that, can we, can we uh, speaking of which, homogenization, but like, I think there's a, 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 a line to draw between our childhood as blockbuster kids uh, to the current climate of, of streaming and filmmaking in general that I noticed that, that I don't know if other people, if you would remember this or if like this has ever struck you, but I vividly remember a time in the blockbuster hit landscape when blockbuster at some point started making and producing their own low budget horror films and they would stock no. them out on the shelf. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. I know blockbuster had a stake in some of these films. If you go I back, I know that. It would have been like, yeah, like late '90s, early 2000s. There would be my like my friend every, Michael Russelle would know. He's the okay, horror god. Michael, yeah, because I have a memory of this. Maybe I'm just making this up. But I remember a time when these really low-budget horror movies with really poorly done artwork on the cover of the DVD started popping up on every fourth shelf at Blockbuster. And I remember just being like, "Wow, Blockbuster's really going downhill as far as like their selection and their curation." Not like. Like, not like I was 18 years old thinking about curation in those like terms, right. but in hindsight, I realized, oh, that was Blockbuster at the end of their at the end of their kind of road trying to find alternate means of revenue streams, right? And they were like, it's what a lot of it's what Netflix did. They started right. sending out DVDs, and then Netflix thought, ah, why don't we just make our own movie? Very cool. It's a simple concept, and if you become a powerful enough corporation, you can finance those things. Netflix was great at first um and don't get me wrong i've worked for netflix i like netflix i think they put out great things they're also However, the nicest people in the world to work with i had a great experience working i was so with, nice <laughs> yeah i worked with netflix on dear white people i cut season three of that show and they were nothing right. but they were nothing but great to work with and i have very you know fond memories of them and i would love to work with them in the future so don't get me wrong and it's not just netflix but what's happened in this streaming landscape is it, it's not, it, it's actually not Netflix's fault at all. It's just the internet in general. It's like right. information is so easy to come by and there is such a glut of content now that it just feels like blockbuster at the end of the nineties where there's less concern about the quality of content and the quantity of content. And instead of, you know, making something that's really left of center and working really hard to find an audience, to spread that word and to build and grow something that we're no longer interested in growing an audience. We're interested in targeted algorithmic, you know, filmmaking. Uh, I remember. Yeah. I was going to say, I remember um, someone said it 
I can't remember. I can't remember who I'm quoting, but they were basically like the issue was you used to make a film and the audience would find it. The people who are interested in the thing that you were interested in would find it. And now we're making films for a presupposed existing audience. Absolutely. I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, that's, you know, the double-edged sword of the internet and information accessibility is that our technology has grown to a place where we can really hammer something down to, you know, not just four quadrants of a demographic, not just age and gender, but like, you know, yesterday I saw a trailer for um, a movie that was um, a movie you would not see in the 90s, by the way, which is a good thing, um, but a, a, a movie about a young girl who is it's essentially a rom-com structure of a young girl who is gay, a uh, high schooler, who is out um, at her high school, is known known to be gay and falls in love with a girl who's on the track team and, you know, tries to strike up a relationship with the track coach. And, you know, the mom who's played by Megan Mullally uh, is, you know, supportive. And, and it's a, it's a movie that wouldn't have existed in the nineties because our culture was so backwards back then. But at the same time, I couldn't help but watch this movie or this trailer and see in my brain the, the targeted, you yeah, know, the producer checklist. Process. The producer checklist going off, like going, okay, we have this, we have this, we have this, we know exactly who we're targeting the audience for, and it will probably hit that target, but I don't know that it's going to have any life after that targeting to, to create a conversation to spread like, like um, everywhere all at once or whatever the new, the new Daniels movie, where, where a movie like that has the opportunity to catch people off guard and just like show them something that they weren't expecting. That's what I'm getting at, I guess, is, is that yeah. it seems trailers these days and marketing and the movies that are being made, we know exactly what we're expecting. And we almost see the whole movie in the trailer these days. And so, so there is no more uh, discovery in a weird way. Yeah. It's like back when we were kids, again, I sound like the old man shaking my fist in the class. No, but I've God, had this conversation a lot. Like a lot of people feel the same way, I'm telling you. Yeah, I mean, I remember going to the movie theater, standing outside to buy a ticket and looking at the posters in the billboards outside and the coming soon thing and being like, what is that? I never even yeah. saw a trailer. It would just be a poster for Independence Day or for, you know, Mrs. Doubtfire, right? Mrs. Doubtfire is a movie that wouldn't even be made today. It doesn't yeah. exist in this world. Um, and it's the, the discovery process was about stumbling into something you, you were sparked to. And then, I mean, crazy telling your neighbor Hey, I saw this movie that you should check out. And that doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, I guess it does in targeted marketing on Instagram and Facebook where we, but the problem is the specificity and the unique, like kind of nature of one-to-one talking to your neighbor, that doesn't exist as much anymore because I mean, in general, we're not talking to our neighbors as much as we used to. We're sitting at home on our computers or our laptops and our, our phones and we're swiping through Instagram. And the marketing, the one-to-one is, you know, A24 flashing um, a poster of, of the Daniels movie. And hopefully you see that and you go, oh, yeah, you talk to your friend about it at dinner. But, like, there's so much stuff being swiped that it could easily brush over and you miss it completely. Right. And, and, that, and that's the problem. Things are falling through the cracks, right? Absolutely. And it, it's also like if if – everything is being targeted at you, whatever, whatever the algorithm, whoever the algorithm thinks you are, 
It's yeah. only showing you movies or music or whatever products that it thinks you are. You're never going to expand beyond, you know, it, we're being served stuff so much that totally. the idea of exploration is being suppressed and that sense of wonder finding a film that you weren't expecting and, you know, on the, on the shelf being intrigued by the cover and just going for it and maybe seeing something crazy, you know, the, going in with no expectations uh, yeah. is, or maybe having your expectations subverted. You know, everyone likes to talk about, Oh, you subvert expectations. But I, it, you, uh, I think that that phrase was co-opted. It used to be that you oh, had yeah. none or you were kind of teed up something that was then intended to be, not, or excuse me, not intended to be something different. It was just kind of like a playfulness. And now it's like, no, we got to, it has to be written into the script, not like a artifact of advertising or whatever, you know? Yeah. And maybe that's not quite the right way to think about it, but. No, I understand what you're saying. And I mean, I think this is, I was thinking about this today. I was working on a script um, that I'm hoping to be my next project that deals with uh, the outlaw country world of the seventies and country music of the seventies. Cause I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s country, like before it became really commercialized in the 80s and before, you know, before it became targeted uh, for Walmart shelves. Um, I think what you're talking about is in a weird way, the, and this is going to sound overly dramatic. I mean it to be overly dramatic, but the death of individuality in American subculture. Like, I feel like and I don't think it's just American. It's not uniquely American. It's happening all over the world. But it used to be that a kid growing up in Little Rock was exposed to very different things that a kid growing up in Phoenix, Arizona or the Bay Area, right? You know, it, it just, for instance, talking about the country music world in the 1970s, you know, that world was rife with kids sitting in Appalachia watching their parents play a banjo. So their music was exposure was what they were exposed to through word of mouth through church through whatever that was shared in communal spaces in appalachia those communal spaces don't exist anymore because the internet is here and everybody's communal space is the internet so then monoculture becomes this thing that wipes out in a lot of ways like the discovery process because and in again being more thought it's all tied it's all part and parcel i think it's like we no longer we no longer commune in individual spaces with with our neighbors uh with our community we commune on the internet with people all over the world and we're just homogenizing thought and creativity and even when you you know speaking of movies is like the way they're marketed. They all look the same. They all, that's why a 24 is so genius. They, movie trailers are infuriating right now. I don't even As, watch them. Anymore. I, I mean, I, I just told you about a movie trailer I watched, yeah. but I just, that's the first movie trailer I've watched in ages. And I, I just don't watch them. Yeah. Like I, I got that AMC a list, you know, love it. Yeah. They're practically paying you to go see a movie. And, uh, but the trailers, man, it's the same editing. It's the same remix of a song. Like it's always a remixed song. Whenever that cliche came up where we're like, somebody was like, Oh, we'll take a Nirvana song and we'll have my, you know, my cousin down the street singing and we'll put some reverb on it. And suddenly it's like, we'll slow it down. And instead of being, you know, you know, 120 beats per second, it'll be 80 and it'll become moody. And and then suddenly that's in every trailer and you know, exactly where it's going to switch. 
Every the trailer. The, in the third act of the trailer, it's going to switch to this, you know, uh, sweet dreams are made of, yeah. you know, you're like, what the hell? Everything. Dude, the, the, the Halo trailer has a Randy Newman song in it. Yeah, I know. I, 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 I don't watch trailers. I watch the Halo trailer as well. But like, yeah, it, 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 why is probably because it works. And like, you know, they've, it works to the degree that they need it to work and it targets the targets that they need to target. I think the frustration I have, and clearly you have, we have similar frustrations is that everything is just so ultra targeted these days that there's, there's no room for, that's not true. There's room for individuality. Daniel's is proof of that. Um, The signal to noise ratio is just a lot crazier. That's it. It's, It's just, there's so much noise out there and, and you know, the internet for all its, great things and being able to connect people uh, instantaneously. I'm starting to think maybe that's not the best thing for, for culture and for art. And, um, you know, I don't know. I think it just sure feels like we're heading more and more towards, um, you know, homogenization and less individuality. The hopeful, you know, in me, the hope in me is that we're headed towards a renaissance and that something's going to come along that's going to, change the game and we're gonna we're gonna see a real paradigm shift in art and culture i think i uh because i've had similar conversations with a lot of people um and i think that especially younger kids since we're all on the same internet they're yeah. getting sick of it at the same speed you know they yeah. don't have to discover it later i i truly do think that we're all complaining about it because it's it's reached a point you know yeah and that, I, th- that I think is- the next five years, 10 years are going to, we're going to start seeing some really cool stuff happening. I, I, I am so. now hopeful. I wasn't like two years ago and now I'm a little more hopeful. Nobody, nobody was hopeful two years ago. Well, true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were in a, we, that's the other thing. It's just like, you know, we just, as a, as a, as a species, the whole planet has just been through the biggest bender, the collective bender that humanity has ever gone through at the same time, like no other time, like even the Spanish flu, Nobody knew in, you know, Japan what was going on in Nebraska with right. the Spanish flu at the time. You, you waited for something to flow to you and, and information and even viruses flowed based on very specific human, you know, interaction. Um, now we just went through something collectively. Like it blows my mind to actually really even think about and I'm getting like. Oh, no, trust me. I, I, but like, I had the same thoughts, dude. Like, yeah, it's it's like, weird. It's weird for all of us to be, to go through the same trauma at the same time. At the same time. So like, if you think of, you know, humanity as an organism in and of itself, because we're all connected uh, in a way, in a web. Uh, we are the universe uh, experiencing itself. Yeah, exactly. See, this is we're children of the matrix. Um, yep. But, you know, it is, it, it is, it is weird to think that we're all going through the same thing at the exact same time. And so, I do think you're probably right because like, you know, when we were 20 years old or when I was 20 years old, you were obviously 14 or something like that. But um, when we were that age, the internet didn't exist. So like experiencing things that other kids of that age experienced relied on you interacting with them by, at random. I now, will say, oh, go the, ahead. No, no, I was just going to say now with the internet, like we all are experiencing everything at the same time. So, so a 20 year old is going through the same thing that a 40 year old is going through, at least on the internet, we're all going through the same thing. We're, we're consuming the same things and we're all evolving 
at the exact same time. So like, I don't know. I, I hope you're right. And I hope that we're pushing towards the thing collectively that breaks us out of, you know, not just art, but like culturally, like thinking and like governments and, you know, the way our species treats each other and the planet. And like, I know these are all lofty things and, and to, yeah, to kind right. of like be, you know, but they're all, it's all, it's everything everywhere, all happening at once. <laughs> it literally is like, it literally is, it literally is all, I mean, that's not the film, but that's no, it, it, no. The, the title of the film is, you know, all of these things are coming to a head all at the same time um, yeah. or it seems so. And, well, that's uh, very, very, uh, very relevant, right? Yeah. Uh, but I will say about being young, uh, you know, in the in the late 90s, early 2000s, I was one of those hyper nerds that played competitive Counter-Strike. And okay, so, yeah, uh, yeah, back when we were meeting at a Marriott for like 200 bucks. Um, nice. You know, yeah, those, yeah those, like 10, those 10 teams. Yeah, 10 teams fighting over a 12 pack of donuts. Um, but uh, that was kind of my nostalgic look on the Internet was those subcultures you know it uh the internet was not an all unifying there was no eventually myspace came out but even that was sort of relegated to your friend group you weren't really yeah. reaching out to other people and just so um, yeah and <laughs> so <laughs> the default guy who was your friend all, all tom you're like who's tom <laughs> tom tom was rad um <laughs> but uh yeah it was just you know the and and my counter-strike group was local to the bay area there's a couple guys in Washington, but, uh, right. you know, we would meet up in person yeah. after two years of playing with them. You know, I show up and they're all 23, 24 and I'm 15 and they're like, what the fuck, dude? And I'm like, right. yo, I didn't right. tell you. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that is kind of what I, that, um, I think you're right. No, I think you're right. The subcultures are dying, you know? Yeah. yeah. But hopefully they'll yeah. come back. Cause I do think, I think, I think the human spirit doesn't like being, I mean, this is why punk existed. This is why outlaw country existed. This is why, um, or exists, you know, pe people want to be individuals intrinsically. So I think, uh, now that we've homogenized, as you, as you've said, I think that's going to, um, have an equal and opposite reaction. Yeah. Know? I mean, well, now we're seeing people, we're seeing meta and metaverses and creating new ways of creating individuality. So yeah, I, yeah, I don't think individuality is going to go away. I just think we're at this place right now where you know um like i said before like copying being the greatest form of flattery i feel like there's a lot of copying going on right now and not a lot of individuality and the individuality that exists out there the tastemakers and the curators aren't really spending the time to grow those things and shine a light on them in a way or maybe they are and i'm just so blinded by the internet that it washes over me and i don't get to see the things that are that are really worth seeing. I, I think, it's, you know, it's probably nobody's fault. It's just the meteor is heading, you know, the direction it's heading and it's just speeding up as they yeah. get further and further along. It's definitely a little column A and a little column B. Um, I, unfortunately, I got to let you go because I, I have another uh, interview in, in Great, no. 20 minutes or something like that. But uh, this has been awesome, awesome conversation. I've really enjoyed uh, chatting with you over the, over the past yeah, hour. I've enjoyed it too. Um, I... Uh, this is a frame and reference convention, but I'll use it here. I ask the same two questions um, at the end of every podcast. Uh, the first one being, if you can recall something you've read or a piece of advice that you were given that has really stuck with you throughout your career thus far. <sighs> yeah. It doesn't I mean, have to be the one, but just like no, something that comes to mind. I've got a lot, but I mean, yeah, I work, when I worked 
before I mentioned I worked with Jerry Zucker, and there was an editor there uh, who was who was a, kind of the lead editor, um, kind of the guru, the technical guru of the whole outfit. His name is Taz Goldstein, and Taz had uh, made a short film that I don't I think it maybe played at Sundance or it played at some festivals, and uh, I can't remember. Was, I think it was called The Golden Cow or something like that. Um, but it was a really smart little short film about George Lucas writing Star Wars. Um, that kind of got some play in the late 90s or early 2000s and kind of had some growth for him. So I, I really looked up to Taz because he, he was a filmmaker and he was smart and technically driven. And um, and I had been making overtures ad nauseum to Taz. I was like, I really just want to edit feature films. We were doing short form comedy content. And I was like, I, I want to edit feature films. How do I edit? How do I be a feature film editor? And Taz, I remember, I, I mention this often, but I remember him kind of looking at me and going, well, if you want to edit feature films, you should edit feature films. And I was like, I was like, kind of angry and frustrated, but also kind of like wowed. It was like kind of just put me in my place and was like, well, like the best advice that I think you can ever get is just motivating you to do the thing you want to do. And like, we, it's easy that that we get caught in our little ruts, and we, we, we find that you have to pay the bills. Don't get me wrong. I was working that job to pay the bills. Taz knew that, and he wasn't belittling that. But what was great about that advice was that it just cut through the bullshit for me, and it was just like, it goes back to what I was saying about we get really myopic on like thinking we have a path, and that you have to click, you know, the 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 check marks in a in a in a path to get to the end goal, and. Chaz's advice is if you want to edit feature films, edit feature films, just took away all the disillusionment and just cut, cut to the quick and was like, yeah, I need to pursue the things I want to pursue and quit talking about it. I quit yeah, sitting yeah. At, over his shoulder going, dude, how did you make that movie? How did you do this? He's like, well, you, I made it. That's how I made it. You know, it's just to do something, you got to do something. Yeah, there's not... Uh... You can, you, it, there is a such thing as over-preparing. You know? I'm the king of it. I mean, I overthink things and I, I, I spend a lot of time, you know, now that I've made my first movie, what I've found myself in, in a warning to anybody who goes to make their own movie is I've now started calculating, okay, what's the second movie? And like, you can get, you can fall back into those ruts of just like, okay, well, I made the first movie. Now I'm going to play the game in a way that they want me to play so that I can get and you just got to be careful. You got to not overthink what the next thing is. I've had friends who've made their first movies that have played at Sundance or South by, and they still haven't made their second movie. And because they get caught in the mechanics of the industry. And I think you just, yeah, my MO now is just like, just keep making things every day. I try to create something and push towards making something. And I don't know if that's micro goals is just make, make, make. Yeah, totally. Uh, Second question, yeah. uh, maybe perhaps a little easier. Uh, okay. The, the send-off is in a double feature. You're programming it. What's the other film? Ooh, that's a great question. I like that. Um, I don't know if that's easier, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the send-off is in a double bill. What am I programming? Is the send-off playing first or second? Your choice. I... We'll say second. We'll make it easy for you. Second. Um, I would say, man, it could, hmm, I would say mystery chain. 
Jim Jarmusch's Mystery Train, um, which is okay. a very, very niche specific choice. Um, but it plays such a huge role. It, and by the way, you're not going to watch my movie and go, oh yeah, Mystery Train, I see it. Because it's not that. It's just that Jarmusch's movie just really played a huge impact on me making the send-off and creatively it spurred something in me that what I think both films have is um, a kind of cyclone-like energy where you have a bunch of characters kind of cycling through each other over the course of a night and um, overlapping plot lines that don't really adhere too much to strict structure rules and just are kind of more about like we were saying before, just tone and like a vibe and a feeling. And um, obviously I'm in no way comparing myself to Charmouche. I think he's just a, a, a fabulous filmmaker and I look up to him, to him a lot. Um, but Mystery Train, it has the right amount of irreverence and the right amount of, you know, weirdness that I think overlaps with the send off. And um, also, in a weird way, now I'm seeing more that I excuse me, but in a weird way, the send-off, you know, the send-off is about LA and it's about Hollywood and it's about a night in Hollywood. And it's very much about the subculture of Hollywood. And that the town and the way we, you know, as creatives in the industry kind of come together and group together at parties and the way we talk and the way we are the way we move. And Jarmusch's movie is about Memphis. And I really truly think it's probably the best Memphis movie ever made. Um, there's some, I know that's a weird thing to say. Like you don't think, you probably don't just immediately go, yeah, okay, there's this Memphis movie. There's not a lot of Memphis movies, but, but, um, you know, Jarmusch really captured in, in, in that movie, the feeling of Memphis and a small blues town and the way wayward souls kind of come in and go out and like how they overlap. And, you know, I don't know. I think the two films are closely uh, related. I don't know that you would sit down and see it right on, for face value, but for me, um, they're kindred spirits, and I, I owe—I truthfully owe Jim Jarmusch making that movie. If he hadn't have made Mystery Train, I don't think I would have made the send-off. Wow. Yeah, that's perfect. Then. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's why I, I can see a lot of other movies playing well alongside it. I mean, the send-off is a kitchen sink movie, and that. I don't think there's a lot of different tones in a lot of different genres. Um, I think if you watch it, you'll see it's like at some points it's, you know, bantery comedy at other points it's almost horror. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know how to describe, I describe it other than to say it's a kitchen sink movie. Um, Cause it's got a little bit of everything, but um, so there's a lot you could probably, you know, taste wise pair with it and go, Oh yeah, I can see. But mystery train is probably the closest in DNA for me as a filmmaker. Hell yeah. Well, uh, that's excellent, man. Um, thanks again for, uh, chatting with me. Like I said, excellent. I love that. That was uh, fantastic. Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me on and taking the time to, uh, you know, shoot the shit. <laughs>